Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and every week the team and I will bring you an exciting mix of discussion, interviews and stories. It's a big week for Labour and I talk about it with George Eaton and Raphael Baer. Then George interviews the political scientist Ian Bremmer about his G Zero magazine cover story. And then Alex Hearn, Philip Morn and I spoiler you rotten for the discussion about Game of Thrones and spoilers. I'm joined by Raphael Baer, our political editor, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, to talk about a big week for Labour. Um, Raphael, I'm going to start with you first. You've been soaking up the majesty uh, of Ed Miliband delivering his big set-piece speech on welfare. I have. I've just come back from uh, Newham, where Ed did his speech, uh, and it was very interesting, actually. Um, he he's no, he's no Cicero, it has to be said. He doesn't, doesn't quite have the delivery of Barack Obama, but it was uh, quite a meaty speech, a lot of what dinner has been trailed before, uh, the emphasis on the contributory principle in welfare, so sort of trying to end the perception that people are getting something for nothing or that people have paid in are getting nothing for so something. that's the job seekers allowance, enhanced. Yeah, essentially. Um, and uh, another uh, important element of it is the argument that essentially um, housing money, when the government spends money on housing in the past, you would spend it on a bit on building houses and a little bit on um, housing benefit, paying the rent of poor people, that's now gone completely into reverse and you know, the far, sort of 95% of it goes on housing benefit, just 5% goes into building houses. The underlying argument he makes is actually just salami slicing, cutting away, trying to be mean to as many people as possible who need money is not actually going to bring the benefits bill down long term. That hasn't worked in the past. There's good evidence to support that. What works is tackling the reasons why the social security budget goes up, which is unemployment and substantially there not being enough housing. And so you build houses and you guarantee people jobs. Um, this is the new Labour position. Uh, it is framed slightly within the recognition that there isn't any money to spend uh, going um, in, in the future, which is the bit that obviously some people on the left have jumped on as very unsatisfactory because they see that as buying into a George Osborne uh, sort of perception of, mm. of what is going on. Other people would say it's just a sort of, you know, 
opening your eyes to fiscal reality. Some people also on the left don't particularly like the idea that you put an emphasis on the contributory principle because they say this undermines the universality of the welfare system, which is the thin end of a wedge, the fat end of which is sort of Victorian poor laws and everyone sort of Hogarth's you know, gin lane. So to talk about universality, George, you wrote a piece about, I think it was the centenary issue in defence of universal benefits. Um, now, the other big event on Labour terms of the week is Ed Balls saying means testing for winter fuel lands for pensioners. Why? What do you think of that? Is it, as I, I mean, my kind of summing up it was, what is it good politics but bad policy? I think I, I think I would agree with that. I don't think, um, I think the principle of, of universality is too valuable to sacrifice for just 100 million. Um, I also think that... So that's, this is the argument that you, I think you, who, I'm not, not sure who came up with the original quote, but benefits for the poor become poor benefits. Yeah. So you need for people to feel, most people to feel they have a stake in the welfare system. So you've already seen it with child benefit, where they took that away from those earning over £50,000. And um, they've also frozen the benefit for three years. So I think a family with uh, three children has lost uh, more than, will lose more than £1,000 over that period from it. That is easier to do when you have fewer people claiming the benefit. Now, it's true that the winter fuel allowance is a relatively recent addition to the welfare state. It was only brought in by New Labour in '97. Um, it's not one of the pillars of the beverage settlement in the way uh, child benefit is, which means that actually Labour's decision to say they won't reverse the child benefit cuts is a far more significant move. But I would say those universal benefits that do exist are worth preserving. And you have to come up with a much better argument for removing them than it will save 100 million. Well, if I could put on my, if I myself put on my sort of latex Liam Byrne mask here and, and imagine what the shadow <laughs> work and pen, <laughs> shadow work and petries says, we've all got one, haven't we? Yeah. Um, and I'm going to wear mine. Um, no, the, the, first of all, I, I half agree with what George says there, but um, the political reality is that people who Labour really, really need to vote for them are very, very sure that Labour pissed a load of money up the wall um, and a lot of it went on benefit. Um, and although you can rebut that with evidence and say, well, actually, long term, you know, the, 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 the bill didn't go up that much. Uh, the, the perception that people have that this was a system that was giving out checks to people without really considering considering why or what the need was and it was kind of indiscriminate is so strong that politically... Labour just has to do something to address that. Otherwise, it's not part of this conversation in the country and it cannot go into a general election without having addressed those concerns. Um, and the second thing I would say is that the long-term threat to uh, the welfare state, to the whole social security system, is uh, chipping away at the legitimacy of it on the grounds that no one really understands who's getting what and who deserves what. And actually turning around and saying, you know what, if you are a baby boom era pensioner who got free university um, uh, education, uh, you're sitting on mountains of housing equity, you've got a great retirement, you're getting a, you know pensions from all over the place mm. um, and actually frankly you don't need that winter fuel payment. There are a lot of people who will just hear that and think yeah that's probably about right and there is the kind of fairness proposition in that that you need to address to shore up basic legitimacy of a welfare system. And let's talk a little bit about the reaction. I know it's quite early now, but um, first of all, the reaction from the right. I saw tweets this morning from uh, the Sun's political Tom Dunn saying that the Conservative spads are kind of you know spinning themselves into a, a frenzy. Yes, they. I sense from the Conservative side that they have a bit of a problem here, which is that 
they'll get they'll get twenty four hours or so out of really attacking Labour for doing a U turn because they didn't have a cap and now they kind of do. Um, and I spoke to Labour people today and said that's fine. We'll take twenty four hours of having piss taken out of us for doing a U turn because actually what then happens is that what the Conservatives can't then do is say you don't have a cap because they do and they can't say you just believe in unlimited welfare spending because they don't mm. and that's the kind of labor win from this really in the terms of the raw politics of it and the tories know it and they would but also hope that Cameron's they... done one or two u-turns himself exactly a u-turn isn't that damaging if what comes out of it is you have a slightly better policy in terms of something the public wants to hear than you had before. And didn't he try a terrible joke at PMQs about more U-turns than a Grand Prix? Which yes. suggests that he's never seen a Grand Prix. And, and I'd love to see a Grand Prix with U-turns. That would be much more exciting. Because actually Grand Prix are fantastically uninteresting to watch most of the time. And But if, yeah, if you've got some sort of yeah, three-pointers and U-turns in there, it would make it... Or going down the middle lane, which we now understand is, the worst is, crime is against humanity. more heinous than... Yeah. than In this week's magazine cover story, political scientist Ian Bremmer looks at how the world map is being rejigged and redrawn, with the G20 becoming very quickly the G0. Here, the editor of The Staggers, George Eaton, talks to him. You've written this week's cover story for The New Statesman on what you call the G0 world. What do you mean by that phrase? Uh, well, well, I mean uh, that we have a world uh, that, that lacks global leadership. Uh, there, there are too many countries that, that matter uh, internationally to coordinate effectively. Uh, the United States is not prepared uh, to act as the global policeman, as much less support. Uh, for the U.S. to play the role domestically that there has been uh, historically. America's allies, uh, like the Europeans and the Japanese, are consumed uh, with domestic uh, and regional issues. Uh, and, and the other countries uh, that have become much more important on the global stage, the emerging markets, are both very different uh, in terms of their preferences uh, and their values and their priorities, but they're also much less capable uh, of providing that leadership. Uh, they're, they're really new to these positions, and they don't have either the diplomatic core uh, the, the global corporations, um, the humanitarian experience or history, or any of a number of things uh, that would be required um, to, to, to really fill um, the leadership vacuum that exists at the global level today. And what are the positives, if there are any, and negatives of this development? Well, uh, at, at a global level, clearly uh, there, there aren't many positives. Uh, it, this is uh, it's a period of creative destruction. Um, but, uh, but frankly, uh, there, there's a longer-term positive, which is it, this was inevitable, right? I mean, the, the, the notion that the world was going to be led by such an incredibly small percentage of it, um, of, its, of its citizens, uh, the United States and the advanced industrial economies, its, its like-minded allies coming out of World War II, that, that was not going to persist for long. Um, in in terms of a historical context, and uh, we've seen from the from the time that the emerging markets started rising in China, in particular, that that, that we were going to need to shake up uh, the post-war order. Um, the the sooner that happens, uh, the better in terms of being able to finally resolve uh, some of the 
the, the, the tensions and the challenges that exist. It's just like having a Eurozone uh, where you, you have a, uh, a, a currency union without fiscal union. I mean, you put it together, it was obvious that at some point that was not going to work, right? And, and, and you needed a crisis um, to actually create much more sustainable, durable, and lasting institutions. I, I think that's a little bit of what the G0 presently reflects. Uh, it's not a new world order. It's really an interregnum. But it's an interregnum that's very uncomfortable, but is required so that we, we can get to, um, hopefully, hopefully, uh, a much more stable and lasting, uh, durable and dynamic, even anti-fragile uh, world order um, on its back. And you suggest that it's those states that are able to pivot and form multiple partnerships that will thrive. Which are some of those countries that are achieving this? Well, it, it, while the G zero persists, uh, you, you, since you don't, since the world is not just led, it's not it's not globalization led by the U.S. There's a lot more fragmentation. There's a lot more regionalization. Uh, it really behooves you as a country to be much more flexible and be in a position where you can work with many different kinds of models and values and standards and priorities. Uh, Singapore, uh, as a microstate, is a great example of this. I mean, you know, it, it works with just about everybody. Everyone wants to be based in Singapore. They've got good relations everywhere. It doesn't really matter. China can rise. China can fall. The U.S. can do well. The U.S. can do badly. Everybody wants to be in Singapore. Uh, Indonesia pivots pretty well. Turkey pivots very well. It's not just a European player. It's also a Middle Eastern player. It's a Caspian player. It's a Eurasian player. It's a NATO ally. And even with the domestic problems they're having right now, Turkey pivots well. Uh, Brazil pivots quite well. Um, there are a number of states that do. Um, but uh, one other point to make is that in a period of great instability and uncertainty, the United States also benefits, and it benefits because of its size and its relative stability. Uh, the, the any safe port in a storm um, really does uh, make itself geopolitically and geoeconomically known. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the United States, uh, against the G zero backdrop, and you name Japan, Israel, and Britain as the states that have the most to lose in a G zero world. Why those three? Well, you know, there are three really big things that are happening geopolitically in the world right now. Uh, pieces that are moving. China's rising, by far the most important. Uh, the Middle East is exploding, um, and the Eurozone is muddling through. Um, and and in all three of those places, um, the countries that are really uh, on the back foot from those developments also happen to be America's key strategic allies um, in each of these three critical regions. Uh, Japan, uh, impacted so critically by, by China's rise, and, and of course not in any way an ally or even strategic partner of the Chinese 
um, Britain um, impacted very dramatically uh, by uh, the Eurozone's uh, crisis and having an existential moment of its own as to what role it wants to play, uh, if any, um, in the European Union as they uh, likely uh, integrate more tightly uh, among its Eurozone members. Uh, and then the Middle East, uh, where the explosive violence, sectarian violence, uh, all across the region, uh, of course, putting uh, the Israelis in a much more difficult and dangerous geopolitical situation. Uh, at the same time that the United States is paying much more attention to domestic issues than foreign policy, um, it, it's, it's unfortunately a difficult confluence, uh, convergence of challenges uh, for Japan, Israel, and Britain. And finally, how dangerous would E withdrawal be for Britain? Um, well, you know, look, Britain is a it's a it's a wealthy country. Um, it's a stable country. Uh, it has a large middle class. Uh, it's not as if Britain would be teetering on revolution. Britain's not Tunisia. It's not Egypt. They're big boys and girls. They can make up their own mind on these things. But but very clearly. Um, if the Eurozone does end up much stronger with real um, fiscal coordination and harmonization, even if growth is low, if they have stronger regulatory regimes, if they have tight banking union, and Britain is outside of it, is outside completely of the EU, um, then then clearly the ability of multinational corporations, um, banks, to base themselves in London and the city and think that will be their European hub will increasingly be uh, not very uh, not very wise uh, decision and so so I think that's a problem I think the Cameron understands that wiser for the Brits is to try to manufacture their own capacity to pivot which means between the United States and Europe but great relations with both hence talking about transatlantic partnership mirroring the TPP that that, that clearly is the best outcome come for the Brits, but, you know, when, we, when you promise referendum, that means that you create strong political incentives to be opposed. I mean, even if in the, in the abstract, a strong majority of Brits would vote to stay in the European Union, once you decide that you're going to have a vote on it, then everyone who is opposed to Cameron is, by definition, going to work themselves into being opposed um, to whatever the referendum is. There becomes a political benefit in doing so, and, and that will enhance um, the attractiveness uh, for many Brits um, in uh, in an exit. So it, it is a dangerous ploy. Uh, I understand that it's for very important domestic political reasons, but it's one that does have potential long-term implications that aren't so positive for the Brits. Thanks, Ian. Bye. Okay. I'm joined by our resident young persons correspondent and our even younger persons correspondent, uh, Alex Hearn and Philip Morn. Um, we're going to talk about uh, Game of Thrones and spoilers. First of all, if you haven't watched Game of Thrones, spoiler, they all get killed uh, when they go to a big banquet called The Red Wedding. Um, but people were very angry about this, Alex. Explain. Well, the thing about Game of Thrones is it's massive. People watch it addictively. And it's aired about 24 hours earlier in America than it is in Britain. So the Americans watched it on Sunday night. And Brits woke up on Monday morning to Americans tweeting, Oh my God! I can't believe literally everyone died! <laughs> British fans would, needless to say, pretty pissed off about that. 
But, as you point out earlier, before we came on air, as it were, um, there are books. Books exist. Well, this is the thing. So there, there was then this whole the, the whole kerfuffle. Anyone who tweeted a spoiler in obviously immediately gets incredibly defensive because this is the internet. Um, and starts going, you know, firstly, well, you should have watched it when you could have, which is kind of small comfort to people who couldn't have watched it at all. And then secondly, pointing out, yeah, these, these books are ranging from uh, 20 to four years old. They're, they're, these spoilers have been out in the wild for a long time. And, you know, the people who've been reading the books have been keeping quiet for a while. It's not really a spoiler. It's not new information. It's just it's information. Don't read it if you don't want to know it. I bring a personal bitterness to this subject because I had to sub Caroline's excellent piece on Broadchurch, which mm. gave away who the murderer was. And then I ended up on holiday watching Broadchurch and all the way through my boyfriend would go, is it him? Is it him? It's him though, isn't it? It's that one. And I'd go, oh, no, it's, it's that other one, actually. <laughs> it was, it was, unbe- but it essentially, I mean, the show, I still enjoyed the show, but I would have enjoyed it a lot more had I not known in advance. The thing is, there's a few, there's a few problems with spoilers because firstly, there is the fact that in, in this world that we live in today, especially with regards to TV, people watch things at completely different rates. So there's no longer this sense that before something has gone out, you can't spoil it. Like, And after something's gone out, everyone's seen it or they're not going to watch it. There's now, you can be reasonable, you can talk about yourself as watching a show and actually watch it on a nine month delay if you do it through box sets. That's probably getting a bit far to ask people not to talk about it until you've seen it. But what if you watch it Sky Plus? Or if you watch it, you know, on a repeat later on in the week. These are these are complicated things. Phil, what is the spoiler moratorium? How long do you get after something's out before you can, you know, be reasonably expected not to mention on Twitter that like Rosebud is the sleigh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> spoilers. <laughs> well, this, but this still comes up. Dumbledore got, dies at the end. People got very upset about the Great Gatsby. Um, you know how you know this book came out uh, a great, great, a great long time ago now. Um, I think there needs to be a sort of. Um, a kind of a level of decency. Twitter's an interesting one because this is not a review. You know, thinking about the, the different types of reviews, you know, one reads. When you read a book review, you know, no one ever really kind of minds when uh, when you spoil the end. Spoil the ending. I mean, what a limited way of reading, you know, or enjoying a piece mm-hmm. of uh, of art anyway. But, um, you know, people don't get, get so upset when they talk about the plot all the way through because, well, you know, you didn't have to read that review to begin with. Um, but then when it comes to film, I mean, people are so obsessed with the idea that film is about plot and very little else that they get re- extremely upset. And, you know, the idea of the... Um, of the kind of the who done it, you know, is so deep rooted in the way that we popularly talk about, you know, um, TV shows, film, books, um, that I thought I find it a bit reductive. I mean, I personally just, if I know I'm going to watch something, I avoid reading the review. But it's it's kind of as ever with something like this. It's it spirals away into the nature of criticism because a lot of that comes from the debate over whether reviews and in which mediums reviews are buyers guides mm. versus something more deep and critical. Yeah, and with film it's quite hard to find a review that isn't fundamentally a buyer's guide should you go and see this film yeah whereas with literature and certainly non-fiction reviews are rarely if ever that yeah and i think that's a shame on film review i mean you do sometimes end up you feeling that they're just sort of parroting the the press notes and this is a problem um i don't know i also think that there needs to be a kind of cultural shift here like there is this you know i don't actually think i think i would be annoyed with somebody on twitter for just belligerently tweeting bruce willis is a ghost yeah, yeah, and actually, I'm I'm kind of weighing up my feelings right now because Brad I didn't Pitt know and Edward end. Norton are the same bloke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I'm just going to do this. This is what I'm going to do for this. There is see that's interesting. There there is one film 
one film really where I'm incredibly strong about hitting people who tell other people spoilers, which is The Usual Suspects, mm. which I think is a film... Because the, the defence of spoilers is that you can enjoy most things um, if you already know the ending, because the, the fun of the ride is part of it. But the thing is, The Usual Suspects is a film where it is a fundamentally different film once you know the ending. Not better or worse, but if you tell someone the ending... You're don't, causing me... Don't! Don't do it! Actual physical pain not to go... No, I won't. I won't. If, you, if, you, know, te- if I, you tell someone the ending, you rob them of the chance to ever watch the film without knowing the twist. And they may still like the film, hmm. but they would have liked it if they'd watched it a second time anyway. You've taken away that first film from them. And I think that is kind of a dick move. But equally well, I don't think that I should be expected to never, ever mention Quite. The Usual Suspects on, no. on Twitter. No. I guess, because it, it comes up a lot in games reviews, right? Because the trouble mm. is that so much of games marketing is about trailing stuff really heavily in advance, letting people play some of the gameplay mm. beforehand, but they have to do it in a way that doesn't then talk about the story. Mm. Then you have this problem that almost all the criticism of a game comes out in the sort of first 24 hours that it's out, when everyone's played it through extremely cursorily. Other people have not got that far through. A typical, you know, AAA game might have 10 hours of story or more. You then never get the conversation about the story. How many yeah. pieces, like something like Tomb Raider's got quite an interesting story, say, or Bioshock Infinite's got a really interesting story, but it's very hard to then go back and revisit and have a proper critical discussion because all of the reviewing is geared to insta, insta-pundit. The other interesting thing that's come out of games recently is the nature of non-narrative spoilers. Every now and again, I see someone talking about a spoiler in terms of gameplay which is true like if you pl- if you play games at all frequently every now and again something will happen in the game itself that makes you go oh my god you- helen's looking at me confused not a video game but we we've been playing risk legacy which is a campaign version of risk and it's possibly the nerdiest spoiler. thing <laughs> i have ever been involved but- i am also a loser actually <laughs> phil so you're outnumbered but the thing is risk legacy spoiler for risk legacy has underneath the board, un- hidden underneath the plastic tray that comes with the game, an envelope saying, do not ever open this envelope. Obviously, we opened the envelope immediately. Yeah. And what actually happens, double spoilers, is everyone playing the game that night is cursed. I think that's a spoiler, and it's not a narrative Not in real one. life, I would, say, <laughs> I would say, only we... in the context of the game. But it's not a narrative spoiler. Mm. But it, it is nonetheless a spoiler. You know, it would be it would suck if we knew what was in that envelope. But equally well, if someone hadn't effectively spoiled that, we would never have found that envelope because we would not have looked under the plastic yeah. in the box. So that's I'm going to well, we, otherwise we'll be chuntering on here for hours. <laughs> I'm going to bring it to an end by saying that was a good spoiler. And it's um, also just say, like on Game of Thrones, back to where we started. It's safe to say that in you know most great like works of narrative art, everyone dies. So that's, kind of, that's kind of a good way to go. I mean, that's what happens at the end, you know. So uh, it's probably a good way to go into things. <laughs> Thank you, Alex and Phil. Thank you, Alan. Thanks. Today's podcast was presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Raphael Bear, Ian Bremer, George Eaton, Alex Hearn and Philip Moore. It was produced by Caroline Crampton, edited by Philip Morn, and our theme music is taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.